Hi, and welcome to A Time to Thrill. It's me, your host, Amy Austin. It is December, and I have the best chat for you today. On this episode, I am interviewing crime and mystery author Sarah E. Johnson. What is so fascinating about this is that Even with the proliferation of television shows about forensics, um, CSI, anyone, there haven't been a lot of books that sort of delve into the forensic realm. I mean, there's Kathy Riggs and Bones and that whole thing, so I'm not saying none. But it's not as popular as police procedurals or legal thrillers or cozy mysteries or, you know, many different people who solve crimes. And so this is my first, I'm sorry, Alexa Gluck is the first protagonist I have ever read who is a forensic odontologist. And let me tell you how many times I had to practice saying that. Try saying it 10 times. It's really, really hard. I'm standing in my kitchen for hours going forensic odontologist, so I don't mess it up. But it's something I've encountered watching crime shows, um, mainly the actually the crime show I really watch uh, consistently is Law & Order SVU. And so when a body gets past the point of easy identification, um, teeth are one of the go-to methods of possible identification of what re- of remains. And so it's it's fascinating because well so many reasons you you really gotta like tune into this interview first of all sarah started writing later in life um i mean i know writers from all ends of the gambit but i do know a lot of writers who started writing in their 20s and 30s and so by the time they reach my age have written i don't know 50 100 books um and have been in the game for a long time so Sarah started writing, um, you'll hear this, um, well, rather not started writing, published her first book at 60. And that's fascinating. So this is like a full on second career. The other thing that is so interesting about this interview is that she spent a year, as you'll hear, in New Zealand. And the series that she's writing takes place in New Zealand. And, you know, the pandemic is a problem. Because I've always wanted to visit um, New Zealand and Australia. And I was going to in 2020, you know, when I was going to do all these other things, like everybody did. And I was actually going to do it earlier this year, and I just couldn't. I overdid it, I'm going to be honest. In 2022, I overdid it. I'm in Panama, I'm in Iceland, I'm in Germany, I'm like here and there and all these places. I, I was probably like in 10 countries. And as much as I like to travel, it was a little exhausting. I mean, I really overdid it. And I actually did it, overdid it this year. Like at some point I was in like Glasgow and I was like, I'm literally tired. Like it's not that I didn't enjoy going to Scotland. It's been so many years or enjoyed spending time in Belgium or wherever. It's just that after sitting still for so long, I was like, God, I go everywhere. My I'm only getting older. My bucket list is not getting any shorter and I need to travel. So that said, who knows what I'll do in 2024. Um, that's around the corner and we'll see. <laughs> right now I got a plane ticket back to LA from Hungary and that's as far as I've gotten plane ticket wise. No, no, no. 
Oh, I take it back. I'm supposed to be in Machu Picchu. After that, we'll see. Okay, <laughs> too much. I, so I don't know when Australia and New Zealand, maybe 2025. Maybe that'll be my like spring break 2025 plan. I think I'm going to do that. Um, that said, she spent a year in New Zealand. And what I have found from spending a long period of time somewhere is that you learn so many things about a culture that you wouldn't otherwise pick up in a week or two of like a regular vacation. And it is fascinating. And one of the things I wish I talked to her about, but um, came up in an interview with, you know, um, author Tamara Gill, who lives there, is I, I find the, the accent fascinating, first of all. But in another sense, my son and I talk about this. They use words that we would consider old-fashioned, but they still use all the time. And I have so many thoughts about how English language changes or begins to differentiate, even in the few hundred years that since colonization. So anyway, that's to me fascinating. Anyway, this is such a great interview, such a great conversation. We talk about forensics, writing process, so many things, travel, and I can't wait to share it with you. So without further ado, crime author Sarah E. Hi, and welcome to A Time to Thrill. This is me, your host, Amy Austin. This month, I am interviewing author Sarah Johnson. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm great here in North Carolina. Hope you're doing well. Oh, our weather is wonderful. It's finally, uh, the heat is gone, and uh, it's between 60 and 70 degrees. That sounds delightful. Um, I will say this. Well, I'm sure you have noticed this because you would know this. It's like being in California. But the number of people who have moved there in the last, I don't know, 10 years seems to me so high. Um, Yeah, we're having, I think, a big suck from the super cities um, mm -hmm. coming to smaller towns. Like, I wouldn't say Durham is small, but it's certainly a more affordable place to live than New York City or San Francisco and a cool place to live. It's great here. It is. I'm just, I, I I don't know. Maybe I didn't see it coming. So I have a friend who lives there, but she moved there. Um, She used to work for IBM, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and I mean, you know, and so she, you know, bought a house, you know, got married, stayed. But so she was the one, I mean, we went to school together, not there. She was the one, but then every so often, like somebody's like, I'm moving, I'm moving, I'm moving. And I know two writers who've moved even in the last year. And then I looked up the population. I was like, oh my God, it's grown. Like I hadn't, That's I didn't right. really, yeah, it was just, it was, it was surprising for me. I, I don't know. I just didn't. I didn't see it coming because <laughs> that's not what people. Crazy number of uh, big apartments in downtown Durham, and they're expensive. We looked into them, and they're really ex- they're small and very expensive, but they're filling up. I know, and I saw that. Like I, that's what I saw. I saw it somewhere, and I was like, somebody sent me a picture, and I was like, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing, or is indeed like I just 
That's not my experience. The last time I was in North Carolina, I woke up, oh my God, I was probably 10. So that's never good. But um, I'm visiting. It's, it's a great place. Um, but it, that was my grandparents. But it's just that it's so different, the growth patterns. It's not all Colorado or Texas. People are really moving there. Um, but what do I know? So, <laughs> um, um, so how long have you lived there? Uh, you know, I uh, have been in the South since I was 13. Oh, okay. Where are you from? New Jersey originally. Oh my gosh. Wait, so you moved at 13. So how do you have an accent? Oh, do I? (laughs) (laughs) I I know an author. (laughs) I just, I have an author friend from New Jersey who lives in Oklahoma, but when, so, you know, she met me, but when I talked to her the first time, I was like, oh, you're from New Jersey. (laughs) Like, I get that. You know, when we moved when I was a kid, um, everybody's like, where's your Jersey accent? We were from South Jersey. So I, my accent wasn't as strong enough as people wanted it to be. That's hilarious. I'm born and raised in New York City and I don't have an accent that I can no, hear. No, you don't. It's very neutral. It's lovely and neutral. Um, my parents were very, had very strong feelings about that. Um, <laughs> it's just random. So um, I got the book that, um, not the book. <laughs> I, the book that you sent, I had a chance to read. And so I want to ask why New Zealand? It's a fascinating place. I was going to go in the spring, but I just couldn't get it together. And maybe like in a year or two, I'll go, um, to visit friends that I haven't seen since the pandemic, you know, but, and they usually, they usually fly here because people from down there tend to fly out a lot more, but That's what, right. What possessed you? Why New Zealand? Yeah, so when my husband retired and I was still working as a middle school reading specialist, I was kind of grumpy driving off to work every day and he had retired. And after about a year of this, he said, how would you like to take a year off and go live in New Zealand? And my youngest child was a sophomore in college and I'm like, twist my arm. So somehow we made it happen. We rented our house out and we rented a house in Christchurch, New Zealand. And immediately we're all big readers. And immediately we subscribed to a newspaper. And the first day, this is hilarious, Amy, the first day uh, there was this big ass storm and uh, like 70 mile per hour winds. And we're wow. like, is this normal New Zealand uh, weather or is this something unusual? And the headlines the next day, true, straight from the headlines were, by crikey, it was windy. And I'm like, okay, I gotta love a place that has by crikey in the headline. But the next day, the headline was gripping. It was chances of finding tourists alive very remote. And this young Canadian couple had rented a camper van. And during that storm, they were driving over one of the Southern Alp passes in New Zealand. And this is really jagged, remote sections. And they disappeared. The chassis of their van was found draped over a boulder in a river gorge, 80 meters down. Her body was found a week later. And his Femur was found three years later, and it just planted, I mean, it was a really sad story, but it planted this seed in my mind that people can disappear 
in New Zealand. They can up and disappear. And it just, my, my books are very uh, driven by setting. And it just seemed like everywhere we went um, were perfect places to kill someone. <laughs> so that is, you know, I didn't start writing the books till we got home, but uh, I, I started collecting information and I started paying real close attention to uh, what was happening um, around me and the way way people were uh, disappearing um, in these remote, beautiful areas. So that was uh, the idea for a series set in New Zealand. So I have a question because, okay, so... How can I say this? I have a 13 year old son who loves geography, loves it. And there's a show we watch, which I will spare you the details about, but basically people play tag across various parts of the world. And last year's season was New Zealand. And well, obviously I know very little. I mean, I have one friend who lives in New Zealand, but I obviously know very little about it. And I did not even know about the ferry from the North Island to the South Island. I don't know how I thought people got from one to the other, but I don't think I ever thought about it. I mean, I don't think I even knew there were two islands until, you know, I was going to go live there. Right. But what I didn't know because until I started reading a book was that there was like a third island. Um, and I, well, obviously I just never thought about it. And it sounds so... Okay, I'm never going shark diving, and I'm not that interested in hunting or camping in really remote areas. However, there are many humans who enjoy that. But have you been to that, that oh my God, that Southern Island? Yes, the name of that Southern Island is Stewart Island. Right, yes. And, uh, you know, we, we, we lived a life in New Zealand. We joined a gym. We both had volunteer jobs. Um uh, went to a church, you know, so we lived a life, but we did a lot of traveling. And one day my husband says, we were planning a, a trip to Stewart Island. And he said, well, would you like to go shark cage diving while we're there? And I'm like, what? Shark cage diving? And it just turns out that Stewart Island is a mecca for great white sharks. They uh, migrate there. They're there about six months of the year. And there was this shark caging industry that had popped up recently. And it, uh, it was really causing tension in the town. It's a large island, but there's only two. There's only, oh, one thing I love about it is there's only like 16 miles of road oh um, in this whole island. I know. Don't you just love that? <laughs> but, and the rest of it is a, is a national park. Um, but, it, and there's 200 people that live there year round. And uh, these outsiders came in and started these shark cage diving um, industries and attracting a lot of tourists, making a lot of money. Some of the locals, of course, benefited with restaurants and, and hotels, but a lot of the locals are fishermen. And uh, they were, yeah, they were saying they were seeing great white sharks in places they had never seen them before. They were coming closer to shore and they were sure they weren't letting their children swim. Though, Amy, I don't know why would anybody would swim because the water is freezing. But <laughs> the, kiwis, the kiwis are such a hardy bunch. Uh, so anyway, they didn't let their kids go swimming or out in small boats anymore. Um, and so there was this real tension going on while we were there between the locals that were against uh, shark cage diving 
and the shark cage divers. Um, so I, I thought, oh, wow, that's just ripe for uh, a plot for a book. So that was really fun. By the way, when my husband found out how much shark cage diving costs, we, we went birding instead. <laughs> I just... And you know, I know it would have been fine. You know, I would have done it. It's not that I didn't want to do it because I was scared something would happen to me. It's actually more dangerous for the sharks uh, who op- not often, but sometimes get caught, um, hurt, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ramming their heads into the bars, you know, trying to get the dangling fish or the chum. Um, but, you know, I just kind of felt like that was their uh, world and, I should stay out of it uh, was my, was my feeling. Yeah, I I will say this. Um so you well, I'm sure you're aware of like the submarine, I don't want to call it what did they call it submersible mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. tragedy that happened some months ago. And previous to that, I have done a submarine thing when I was in Hawaii. Um not as deep as the Titanic. It was just to get to the bottom of the ocean. Um I'm going to tell you, it made me kind of nauseous. It wasn't the most enjoyable experience, <laughs> but it was, it was fascinating because I've never seen the bottom of the ocean, you know, beyond like a few feet from the beach or in the Caribbean, you know, right. where you can see, you know, slightly farther out because the water is clear and warm. Um, but I, I, I always have mixed feelings about, well, I don't want to call it, well, adventure tourism as it were. Because 50% is like, oh my God, this is so amazing. I have to go see it. And I I will say this. I mean, I went to Iceland and I went um, in the glaciers, which I still have mixed feelings about, but I wanted to see it greater than I felt I was inflicting too much on the country. But but it's, it's that tension. I don't know. And I have feelings about it, especially both like Iceland and Cuba, um, where, yeah, it's just... Like, especially in Iceland, I think they have like 300,000 local residents. They have like a million visitors a year. And, right. And you're like, is that really a good idea? But also it was the most amazing, not the most, but like one of the most amazing places I've ever seen. So, and I do yeah. st- strongly believe in people having travel and experiencing all sorts of other things in the world other than your backyard. But also, yeah. but then there's some, there's always going to be that intention because you're, I don't say impinging or infringing upon people's like regular yeah. everyday livelihood. That's right. That's right. And on, uh, and on nature mm-hmm. itself. Yeah. Like uh, I have not done a glacier tour and the book I'm writing now, book six in the Alexa Glock series uh, starts where um, a glacier is retreating in New Zealand and bones are found. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Oh, I wish I had taken a helicopter and gone on a glacier. But then you realize, you know, how bad that mm-hmm. is for, the environment, the glaciers aren't going to be there much longer, and I really want to see them. So there's this this tug of war that you play uh, with yourself um, that that I think is going to become uh, even even a bigger tug of war as climate change progresses. Yeah, no, it was huge. I wanted to. I know that in my lifetime it's possible there will be no glaciers. So I really wanted to see it. But of course, me seeing the glacier hastens the demise of glaciers. But I don't it know. Exactly. It was, and it, it, the same for a friend of mine. We had this conversation because she went to um, Alaska um, at about the same time, and we were discussing it. But we really wanted to see it, but also yeah. didn't. You know, it's oh, it's so hard. It, yeah, and then you think of your son, and you want him to be able to see these things, and it's it's tricky. We're all grappling with it. Yeah, it really is. But 
so as I was reading the book, okay, so the shark cage diving notwithstanding, what do you think? Okay, so when you went birding, how far in did you go? I mean, you, I mean, so in the you know in the in the book, they're like in the bush. Like I'm just like, yeah, this is never going to go well. But yeah, <laughs> but as a reader. Yeah, no, the birding, the birding was pretty tame. Okay. <laughs> we weren't, we, we weren't going to get lost or anything. Um, but I will say that the birding was on an island off of Stewart Island. So we had to take uh, a boat to get there. It's called Olva Island. And they're working to make it predator free from the introduced species mm -hmm. that are decimating their birds. And we were worth a, with a lady who was, you know, just crazy about birds and it was infectious and uh, New Zealand has, uh, this is so interesting if uh, some of the listeners don't know this about New Zealand, but there are no indigenous land mammals in New Zealand. Yes. I, well, Isn't that amazing? I think about that. So my son and I talk about that because Iceland has a similar, not exactly the same, but a similar sort of thing. So it was sort of interesting being there. Um, I was there maybe like a little less than a year ago. God, the time flies. And oh. it was odd because there were so few mammals. I mean, you because obviously where it is, but also so few birds. And I guess the birds are summer things. And I was there. I wanted to yeah. see the northern lights, which I did not see. But oh, oh, too bad. <laughs> but I didn't. It's weird to be some. Okay, most places on earth, I I when I go they're like 95% similar to where I am and 5%. Oh, this is, right. oh my God, this. But yeah. though that idea with, without that, I think is fascinating. And I often wonder, not that I wonder, I mean, I've looked it up, how things like that happen. And then with the introduction, yeah. then you have the other problem. So like even in, in Los Angeles, there's an island called Catalina where they introduced um, wild boars and among other things. And then they just proliferate because they have no natural predators. Right. And then they become well, the problem. In New Zealand, mm -hmm. exactly. And a lot of their birds developed because there was no mammals that were feeding on them. They developed wingless. They can't fly away. So now that they have introduced animals like stoats and rats and possums, you know, it's just decimating their special birds, not just special birds, but all their birds, mm -hmm. but especially the ones that can't fly like the kiwi that everybody knows right. about. No, but it reminds me also of Hawaii, which is similar in the way, oh, I mean, that gosh. volcanic sort of thing where they rise up and then things develop, but not in the way that the huge land masses like North America or South America That's or right. Europe That's right. um, develop. And it's, it's actually quite fascinating. And it always feels to me like that makes the places more foreign in the sense that they just have a whole different thing going on. What? That's right. So a, a year. So I, I, you're, I have known other authors who have done this. Uh, I know one who lived in Northern California, rented out her house and traveled around the world for a year with, her, wow. with small children, which I don't know if I would have done that. Oh, man. <laughs> but I mean, she's not the only one. I mean, I know more than one person has done it. And the children, I think at the end of the day are better for it because it becomes this fascinating sort of look into all these places that, you know, you wouldn't normally spend, let's say, a week at a time. Um, and right, such an education for them. Right, but spending months. So having spent a year there, what do you think you got a good sense of the culture? Oh, sure, I really do. We, you know, we made friends as we were there. And um, 
you know, the Kiwis are, they're just such a hearty bunch. One of the things that really stuck with me is like there, there was no Halloween celebration. And at Christmas, maybe a few people had lights up. It was um, not as uh, over the top as America is. Mm-hmm. And, and that was refreshing. I, I found that really refreshing. Everything was more low key. Everything is more modest. Um, we don't, I did not see the, any McMansions and, um, you know, it, it was just a more modest kind of, uh, oh, kind of reminds me of America in the fifties or something. No, it's, so that was a lot of fun. It's, it's actually fascinating. So you don't need all this information, but I've been taking, um, a break from writing. Cause I think I'm burned out after 28 books. <laughs> Finally hit wow. me. That I was burned out. Congrats for that. And, um, so I was watching and I also do not take in a lot of pop culture, which I'm struggling with as a writer, because I realized that my references are pretty dated and I'm trying to, That's right. trying to, I'm not saying right that I agree with that, but I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I have to go to my grandkids for that. Yeah. I trust me. I mentioned <laughs> Stalin and I had asked three people, would they get a Stalin-esque reference? And then I, I was talking to somebody yesterday and I always make references to, um, the wizard of Oz. And I thought, oh, I think I, I may need to like retire those. <laughs> like, um, but I found, but I've been watching HGTV because people have been telling me for years I should watch these house hunter shows because I do love to look for a house. And what is fascinating to me, and I'm trying to figure it out because I don't, I, I don't, I mean, not, you know, most people don't move all the time. So I don't talk to people about houses very often. But I'm watching these shows and people are like, I can't live without four bathrooms or 5,000 square feet. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I totally didn't grow up like this. And then in Europe, the spaces are like, uh, like basically eight people living in seven or 800 square feet with children. And I think, yes. so I just don't know how, I have so many questions as to how we as a society, at least in America, have, have this belief that we need so much space or so much stuff or whatever it is. When I travel, people are living with so much less stuff and space. And even a friend of mine, um, we had breakfast a few weeks ago and she spent a year, speaking of which, she took a year off and went to Bali with her family. And she was like, I don't understand why I have all this stuff in LA because we lived for a year really happily without all the stuff. Isn't that interesting? And and I think if you don't have the experience of traveling, you don't, um, you can't see that. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think yes, because you need to get outside of it for a period of time to see it. It's it it's one of the things. It's actually like a the thing in my brain I can't sort out because when I'm not in LA, I don't have all of my stuff. Well, I have some stuff, but not all of this stuff. And I don't think about it. And then the minute I come back, I'm like on Amazon Prime ordering. I'm like, who is this? Like I don't understand how I can go months without it, without a thought. And then I come back, I'm like, oh, you know what I need. No, I know exactly what you mean. I was just reading, I'm rereading some Mary Oliver poems. And one of the poems that I read this morning was, I don't know, it was just, she was out. Maybe it was called the snow hair or something like that. And the beauty of the river and the rocks and all. And then, you know, the last two lines are, you know, why do we need so many things? Why do we need power and why do we need things? Mm -hmm. And I think people can get the, get away from it if they can get out in nature, you know, even without traveling. So I, I do think that's, I think true. that's important for us. I, I do. I think that's so true. It's, it's, yeah, I think about it often, um, but I obviously have too much time to think. So what, 
all that said, what made you decide to sit down and write these books? Because it's, okay, it's such a specific, okay, well, I'd have to ask a couple other questions, but well, it's such a specific genre niche. It's not as if, you know, you're like, I'm going to write the grand American novel about coming of age, or I don't know, you know, those kinds of very general, broad things. And a lot of writers I know sort of start broad and get narrow, but I feel like you started narrow. Which, yeah, which by did. the way, career-wise, great idea. <laughs> well, you know, I thought I had, like you say, a niche. I thought people were interested in New Zealand. And then I thought um, Alexa's specialty, forensic odontology, was fascinating. So I thought both of those things um, would would attract readers. And it, and it turned out uh, they did. Um, but, you know, I was 60 years old when my first book came out. And I, like you, I have always been a, a huge reader. And uh, and when we got back from New Zealand, I did not go back to work full time. I went back to work part time. I was a journalism major uh, in college and I had written for uh, some magazines and uh, newspapers, but it was just the right time. Always huge. Maybe 50 percent of what I read was mystery. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was just the time in my life where the forces came together and I sat down and did it. And I never said to myself, oh, you can't do that. I just did it. And uh, one of the uh, maybe you do the same thing. But the thing that helped me the most with my writing was joining a writer's group where I was accountable for 10 pages each week and listening to other writers pages and Mm -hmm. You know, I just did it, and uh, it it took me a year to write the book. It took me a year to find an agent, and a couple months after that, before it, it was bought. But uh, I just did it. Yeah, no, that's the joining a writers group is how I finished my first book, and it took me a lot longer than a year. I just couldn't. You know, the thing is, I've read so many books, but it, putting together a book is sort of like to me like putting together a puzzle, at least in my brain. And I was like, I'm not getting the pieces. I'm missing the edges or whatever. And joining the writers group um, just gave me the discipline. I mean, every week it was good to show up. And I was like, okay, well, if I don't, fi-, it was called finish the damn book, the, the group. Um, so we, oh, that's awesome. it was great. So we had all like, you know, I mean, we had all started, but not finished. Let's just say that. And so yeah. it, it, I will be forever grateful because I finished the damn book um, because it just, it felt daunting. Um, and, but it, you know, it got done and life moves on. Okay. So I have two questions. Let me start with the first one. What, okay. What did you read growing up or like all the years before you started writing? Everything. I'm like mm-hmm. you, I read everything. Yeah. I just read everything. What I do is I try to balance, um, a book that has more meat, uh, maybe like Demon Copperhead with with something uh, fun like a C.J. Box or Ellie Griffith's book. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, maybe I'll read Pass by Isabella Wilkerson. And then the next book I read is, uh, I don't know, a, a Kathy Reich's book. So, you know, I, there's nothing I don't like to read. That's fascinating. Okay, there are things I... I, I, I do say um, I got my mother's Nancy Drews, and I don't know how I, old I was, maybe nine, ten years mm-hmm. old. They were the old uh, blue, blue cover, yeah. um, covers. <laughs> I'll never forget that. I remember we were driving somewhere, and I was in the back seat, and I was reading about Nancy Drew uh, crossing a lake in a storm, and it was so gripping, and 
uh, that scene has always stayed with me. But I will say that I outgrew Nancy Drew really quickly. I mean, there's like 50 Nancy Drew books, and uh, she doesn't really do uh, have a character arc. No, it's sort of... Uh, you know, I even as a kid could see that very quickly they became uh, formulaic. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to say I remember the covers because um, at my son's elementary school, she had there were too many books for the library because parents love to donate books. But in the back Aww. room, I don't know when she was wrote, she rotates them in and out because kids have different interests, you know, and waves and all sorts of things. And one day the Nancy Drew books popped up and I was like, oh, my God, I remember these like little blue hardcovers. So I'm going to be honest. I don't they were not purchased for me. So maybe they were my mother's. Or, I don't know. I never thought about it. I have to ask now, but I read maybe 10 or 11, but it was the same uh -huh. as, and I'm younger than you, but it was the same as like Sweet Valley High. So there were two kinds of series and I have a, a preference as an adult. There were the series that, that were focused on, let's just say the proceduralness or of it. So this romance, this high school, this mystery without character, main character development and the series I think I enjoy more now are those with development. Although I'm finding with some series I've read for many years, there are some limitations because the people are getting very old. And, you know, the 70-year-old cop right. is not a thing. Um, so, That's right. Are you talking about Michael Connelly? Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> was that too obvious? Because he had a cane on the left. Like, you know, and I was like, oh, you're getting too old for this game. <laughs> I know, but I think it's great. I mean, he aged his, his cop in real life. And, uh, you know, that's a decision you have to make. I don't know how you did it in your uh, your books. How do you age your character? They started off much younger, and I write in the past. So oh, I think the first book I wrote was probably contemporaneous to the time that it occurred. I'd have to really think about that. I don't know. This is like 20 years mm -hmm. ago. Mm -hmm. But what happens is that they occur sequentially. So she started out, let's say in the main series is at 33 or something. I don't have to think about it. And now she's 38 or 39. So it's just timing, mm -hmm. but it's also, well, I, I know the books, I finished it, but it's also 2010. So right, it makes right. it easier for me. I don't have to deal with the modernization so much. And also it's very sequential. And also I know exactly what happened during that time in that place. Because it's they all take place in Cleveland. So in Cleveland, nineteen ninety six, it was this. In Cleveland, in two thousand six, it yeah. was this. In Cleveland, and so right now they're in the midst of. Doesn't matter. In Cleveland, there was a huge, huge, huge scandal where let's say like fifty to seventy people were indicted and sent to prison for a corruption oh. in, in county government. And I lived there when there was the corruption in county government, and I was looking oh. around, going, nobody noticed this. And then everybody got arrested and indicted, and I was like, okay, so clearly, like I wasn't crazy. But I felt gaslit wow. in the town. But so, wow. so I'm writing about that era because it, for me, and maybe for my readers, you'd have to ask them, it encapsulates what it's like, not only dealing with the justice system, but going up against a structure that is so fundamentally corrupt from the top down. And so I keep it within that era, but then also it makes the aging a little bit easier. So it's been six or seven years in book time, and I think it's been 14 books. But, and, you know, yeah, so she's aging half-life. Yeah. 
Yeah. Alexa is too. Alexa's aging a couple months between books instead of uh, a couple years. years like yeah. 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 But I didn't, you know, I didn't really think that ahead. Of, I didn't think that out ahead of time. And it's funny. That's just something if you're going to write a series, you might want to think about ahead of oh, time. Oh, I wasn't, I was planning to write a book, so I can't speak on that. But, yeah. but it's the same with the Alex Delaware. I don't know if you've read those, but that's a similar, um, you know, Alex Delaware and Milo Sturgis. I'm like, you know, at this point, like I remember them driving like in LA with smog and it's a whole different kettle of fish right now. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, fascinating. <laughs> yeah. But I do think about that. So what do you have like favorite books that books that really like, um, I don't know, captivated your imagination when you were like, I don't know, let's say 10 to 15. Cause I feel like that's a formative reading period you know i i this will, this will age me but boy the first one that i couldn't put down when this was when i was in high school was peter benchley's jaws i mean like everybody was going around the high school uh maybe that influenced me with uh the bones remember <laughs> <laughs> but you know i went on I, I i real quickly went on to uh just reading um adult books mm-hmm. um and yeah, i have a hard time remembering uh, exactly what I was reading back then. I can barely remember what, you know, I've started keeping book journals and it's really nice. I write about every book that I read. And so now at least I can, I can read about what I read six years ago. Yeah. Do you know, I, I started keeping a book journal maybe 10 years ago. And the main reason was, and this is like a family joke. Um, our library has like a giveaway pile every, I don't know, month. I don't know. It doesn't matter for six months. I don't know. And I kept bringing the same book home and I had three copies. <laughs> I literally never read it, but there was something about the cover that clearly compelled me. And on the third copy, they were like, come on now. Uh, That's really funny. It might even have been different covers. I know, but it was something about it that was compelling. I gave them all away. But um, yeah. but keeping a... Yeah. Two books that really stick out for me that I've read maybe 20, 30 years ago were uh, Wally Lamb's This Much I Know is True mm-hmm. and Annie Cruz's The Shipping News. Uh, but those would not have been when I was a kid. They they would have been probably maybe when I was in my when in my forties. But they they are books that I will occasionally reread. What? Oh, you reread? I don't. Um, not often. Not often. What do you think it is about those stories that you that sort of I don't want to say hooked you in that that you found compelling? You know, one of the things about the shipping news was the setting. The setting was um, not Nova Scotia, one of the Canadian islands. It'll come to me in a minute. And the wind was so fierce that these people had to chain their houses to rock oh my God. so they wouldn't blow, up, blow away. And the other thing was the character. This character, Coyle, just, he just really touched my heart. He had, he had this really long chin, and so he would go around uh, stroking his chin to kind of hold it. And, and he was awkward, and that's just always uh, stuck with me. And with um, Wally Lamb, I think it was the... Uh, um, exploration of schizophrenia mm. uh, of, of identical twins. One had it and one didn't and what it would be like to be the one who didn't and how he felt for his brother. So uh, those are some uh, characters and plots and settings that, that stuck out. That is fascinating. I, yeah, that that's fascinating. Okay. So I'm going to ask this because I, I spent all day yesterday practicing this. 
what was it about <laughs> forensic odontology that got you? Because yeah. so I said to my son, he was like, what are you reading? Because there's, you know, this, well, whatever, I'm always reading like 10 things. And I was like, but he liked it you were reading about sharks? No, he liked the forensic. He had never heard of forensic okay. forensic odontology. And I looked at him and I was like, you haven't. But, if, you know, he's 13. I'm not saying he should have. And so yeah. I explained to him IDing bodies when you didn't have other information. I was like, you know, well, in my experience, it's often burn victims or um, that's right. what do I want to call it? Decomposition. And that's right. And he was like, really? And I was like, well, you know how you've gone to the orthodontist and you've had x-rays, you know, so those records I said, but not everybody's gone to the dentist. And we went into a long detour about. That's right. Good. Uh, good. I'm glad I sparked such a great discussion between you and your yeah son. no it's fascinating although this morning we discussed the sociopath next door which is maybe a different conversation but well yeah that's, that's kind of a scary thought. well i'm reading that as well oh, oh that's a book that's not literal no no it's a no no, no. It's, a, it's a book from like past the neighbor's house no it's because i write about crime and i don't think yeah. So people commit yeah. crimes, I think, for two reasons. One, because they have no morals, and or two, because there's something to be gained. And that's right. I'm really exploring right. more of the people who have no morals, less than the people who have something to be gained. That's that's when, that, that, that's the ones that scare me. The yes, gosh. But that's sort of <laughs> where I am in my writing journey. But so I was reading that. But so anyway, we talked about the forensic ontology, and he, so when I explained it to him, he, so he'd never heard of it, and I was like, well, then here you go. But I guess, and they even had a unit last year in forensics at school. I guess it didn't come up. So yeah. what made you pick that? Because there's, you know, well, I'm sure you're aware with like CSI and all of those, that era of show forensics was featured more than it ever had been, at least in my lifetime. Um, right, right. Um, I, I, what am... Um, uh, sparked me was how much I loved Kathy Wright's books. Oh, um, yeah. What is she? A forensic archaeologist, right. I believe, is she is, and she spends her times in the book between Charlotte, North Carolina, and Quebec. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just loved all the forensics in that book. And of course, her books were turned into the uh, Bones series, right. which I don't I don't care for as much as the books, but. And, you know, I, I'm not sure. There's not a lot of forensic um, mysteries being written. So That's true. I think it's a television I, I, thing. Yeah, it's more television. So I just got on the Internet, and I knew I wanted to uh, have her uh, be a forensic specialist, but I didn't know what. And I just kind of got on there, and I explored. And, and when I saw odontology, I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> Alexa will take a bite out of prime for her motto is lips may lie, but teeth never do. And it has just been so much fun uh, to explore. And of course, I was a, a reading specialist and a little bit of a newspaper uh, writer. I have no background in forensics. So, you know, the number one thing I had to do was make connections and find people uh, they all turned out to be women that would read over what I write to make sure I get it right. And these women are phenomenal and they are so giving of their time and they're so funny and they're complete geeks. They love what they do. They love what they do. So my forensic consultant is Dr. Heidi Eldridge and she's currently, she was here in Durham, but she has moved. She's now director of crime scene investigations at George Washington University. She's a hoot. She just, 
she is so geeky about the type of fingerprints she has and uh, she's totally totally into my book so she will read over something i've written uh, in the book that comes out after uh, the bones remember mm-hmm. the bone track alexa's gone on a hiking trip with her brother and of course there's a murder along the way and um, she uh, is asked to um, examine the body and rigor mortis has set in and you can't fingerprint somebody if rigor mortis has set in. So I did all this research about how is Alexa going to break rigor mortis so she can take this woman's, this dead woman's fingerprints. And I was so excited. I came across the hand boiling method where, where she would dip the woman's hand in a cup of uh, hot water. And I was like, yes. And when Heidi read that over, she's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you discovered the hand boiling method. Um, It's it's recognition. It's really cool. But then she said, that said, you're not using it in the right way. And so I had to rewrite the scene. And there's only two ways to break rigor mortis. And Heidi told them to. Okay, wait, I have a question though. I thought that Okay, my knowledge of dead bodies is zero, but I thought that people had rigor mortis, and I can't remember the reason why, but I thought the body relaxed after three, four, some number of days. Yes, 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 yes. So would the- Yes, the body would totally uh, relax after, after, say, 12 or 24 hours. The body would have relaxed. So then, okay, I don't even, I don't know why I'm in the weeds on this. So then- would you not wait? What was the, well, see, now that's the book. Yeah. What was urgency. the urgency uh, to identify the woman right away? Um, it, that book is sort of like a, a closed room mm-hmm. mystery and mm-hmm. certain number of suspects and they don't want people to leave. And so time is of the essence to identify who this woman is. Fair enough. Cause I was thinking like, uh, well, Okay, so I live in a big city and, you know, there's not always urgency. And so by the time the body gets to, um, gets to the, um, be examined, it's well, 95% of the time it's well past that window. Even Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. The fun thing about, um, I want to get all my facts right, but I can also, um, uh, in, in, in the fourth book, Alexa uses this forensic, um, not machine, device that uh, uses um, vaporized gold uh, blown into a mist that can land on fabric and show whether there's fingerprints or a palm print on the fabric. Mm-hmm. Just fascinating. And Heidi said, oh, yeah, man, you, 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 that scene you wrote, that's just great. But she said, by the way, those machines are really expensive and there are only two, of, only two of them in the whole United States. And here I have one in a forensic lab in a little town in uh, New Zealand. So I do I do make some things up. Yeah, no. Oh, wait. So then I have this question for you. So, oh, this is pre-pandemic. Maybe six or seven years ago, I listened to a podcast that I don't listen to true crime podcasts generally because it's too grim, I think, um, even though I write about grimness, but, but that's not true. So one of the things that they talked about, so the podcast started with the idea that they were going to solve this mystery and they solved it in like the first episode after 20 years. And I thought, now what, but what they went, what they did with the subsequent 
episodes, like Minnesota Public Radio, what they did with the subsequent episodes is they talked about the level of, how do I want to say this? Investigative knowledge is not even. So let's say in large cities, like, you know, where I am with 4 million people or where I'm from with 8 million people, they have a lot of crime and they have a lot of specialized people who can suss out forensics and all of that. But in smaller towns or towns where they don't have police, where it's just county or state police, that not only do they not necessarily have the equipment, like the state lab at the, in the Capitol may have that stuff, but also people are not the on the ground police are not necessarily aware of what you can do. No, that's you're, you're, you're spot on there. Uh, it's, it's very uneven and money has a lot to do with it and where you are. So you're totally right. And not only that, a lot of times the forensic wrong and sends innocent people yes, to prison, which I I explore in my uh, fifth book that, that'll come out this coming June. Oh, it's terrible. Uh, there's a lot of bias. There's a lot of uh, uh, false analysis. I will never, and I probably did in my earlier books, maybe in the one you just read, I'll never say anything is a hundred percent match ever again. You know, you should not use the word match, maybe with DNA, uh, but not with fingerprints. So yeah. I'm learning a lot as I, as I continue to write the series. Yes, yeah, so I read that the interview on your website about that, and I had not. Well, no. Okay, look, I write about police bias, so I'm not going to say I don't know that, but I hadn't thought about it in forensics because, and I, I'm actually the book I just finished. I talk a lot about the Innocence Project and the use of forensics to exonerate people. But I had not yes. thought until I read this interview, to be honest, about the use of forensics to convict people and the forensics being wrong. So we've always, not we've always known, let me not say this, um, but there were like, when I was younger, there was just like blood tests and it's like, are you, oh, AB, you know, it was pretty, you know, kind of rudimentary or witness right. identification that is flawed for a thousand reasons. Exactly. Um, so that I've always known. And I, so my perception of forensics now, and not as a lawyer, practicing lawyer, cause that people don't use forensics as often as you would think, because it, it is expensive and they can convict people without it. So that said, my idea of forensics was like, oh, here's finally a level, a way to level the playing field. And so if your DNA or whatever, fingerprints, it doesn't matter, you know, hairs, fibers, whatever, are not there or somebody else's are or whatever, then we have a way to, to prevent innocent people from going to jail. Um, at least in the case where they try and they have experts. I mean, there's a lot of other issues in the criminal justice system. But when I was reading your interview, I was like, oh, I hadn't thought of the introduction of bias in that way, like during the forensic process. I hadn't either. And I, in, er in some of my earlier books, you know, Alexa is looking at fingerprints side by side. And, you know, that is not the right thing to do because you tend to look for similarities mm -hmm. and overlook uh, things that aren't similar. So mm, confirmation um, bias, probably. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it, it's, it's a mess. It's a mess. There's a lot of people in prison that shouldn't be. So I'm going to ask you to say, actually, honestly, since I didn't think about it before, like a week ago, 
what do you think is the solution for that? Because when people, when there is forensic evidence that is involved in a conviction, people feel, well, people feel the perception is that it's more sure. So if you're just like arresting Joe on the street and Joe's like drunk and doesn't remember, and you know, therefore he's in jail. That is a one situation where you're like, eh, you know, this can go nine ways. But in the other situation, it was like, well, Joe's fingerprints were there or these fibers were there or whatever. Then it seems like a much more short situation. And then yeah, it's, it's not. not. And it's not. It's not. Well, one of the things that they need to do is divorce any police station uh, with a lab. A lab should not be connected to a police station. And they all they, they are all over the mm -hmm. country. And, you know, if somebody comes and brings you this and I, you know, might say, I think this is our guy. Can you check the forensics? You know, the bias is there again. You want to you want to uh, please this person. Uh, so, so some of the things are uh, already in place, and that is to always have another analyst uh, check uh, results, mm -hmm. not knowing what your results were, uh, blind tests, uh, separating uh, crime labs from police stations, uh, you know, ask uh, if, if you're ever on a jury um, and you have a, a witness, not a witness, um, a, an expert up there saying, you know, this is a hundred percent match. Well, that's BS. There aren't, there aren't a hundred percent matches unless it's DNA. Mm -hmm. uh, DNA truly doesn't lie. <laughs> um, but uh, fingerprints, you want to ask about error rates. What are your error rates? Who confirmed this? What is your background? This um, is fascinating because what I have found in my practice, and I haven't practiced a long time, is that, and maybe it's cheaper now, but okay, nothing is free and everybody has a budget. And so DNA was like, was maybe still, was more expensive. And so if you could get a fingerprint match or some other evidence that was less expensive, then that's what people would do. It wasn't like, let's all hop to DNA. Right, right, that's right. Well, I think uh, more, more, more often we need to hop to DNA or at least uh, get the fingerprint comparison um, blindly analyzed by someone else uh, and see if, see if they're confirmed. Do you think that there would be a movement? I can't see a reason. I can't see police like letting go of the grip of that because well, because they have a they have a job and a goal, and their goal is not what a def I it was a defense attorney. What my goal would have been, and so the the only thing, and I don't know if this is never going to change. Maybe is that the only mm -hmm. thing that worked is that if my client had more money and could hire their own expert or whatever to refute it, then that went a much longer way than just cross examination. You know, it's an unfair justice yeah. system. Uh, and, and and what you've just said is is one of the roots of that. Yeah, money, money, money. I, yeah, I, I talk about it all the time in my books because it's we don't talk about it all. I mean, it's known, but it's it's such a large factor. That's right. That's right. And time, mm -hmm. you know, DNA tests take so long, and even a fingerprint analysis can take a long time. And yeah, and uh, it's hard. At least. And so for clients of mine, so either it's hard and I did not, I discounted this when I was younger. And I think as I get older, I could see it. I think we discount the stress. So even if you're out of jail and therefore or not, the speedy trial time is slower. The stress of being mm -hmm. under indictment, you know, is not zero. 
And I, and I had never considered that. So people often want to rush. Well, this is like delayed gratification. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying this is wrong, but they want, they want the certainty of conviction or pleading or whatever that is separate and apart from like, if we wait nine months and two days and we can get a much better result And nine months and two days is a long time to live with an indictment over your head and not know what's going to happen. It is. It is. It, it threatens your job, mm-hmm. your, your livelihood. People look at you with suspicion. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a tough system. I don't, I have so many thoughts. So, okay, let's ba- back to New Zealand. I'm sorry, I get I, the criminal justice system I get to talk about all day, which I don't know how I feel about that. Have you been back since the year? Yes, we just got back uh, this past February. We stayed four mm-hmm. weeks and uh, it, it, it was wonderful. Um, you know, it was right after they had had a cyclone. So uh, some of the some of the activities we had wanted to do, some of the hikes we weren't able to do because of damage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we both got COVID while we Oh, my God, I'm so sorry. But very, very light cases. But, you know, so instead of doing some of the fun things we wanted to do, we we were isolated, um, you know, <laughs> isolating ourselves in a beautiful setting. Mm-hmm. So the ferns, I'm, I'm so stuck with the ferns. I'm, I know, isn't it fascinating? Because it's gosh. just, oh my gosh, you will not believe what you can find out from a tooth. So from a tooth, and Alexa, this is in book five, from a single tooth, I could tell Amy, no, I can't because I'm not an odontologist. But an odontologist chemist can tell where you grew up. Oh, because of the water? Strontium isotopes. Exactly. Strontium isotopes uh, go through the food chain, end up in in the food and the water you drink. And that where you, when your molars were erupting, uh, they will be in your molars. And, of course, teeth don't regenerate themselves <laughs> like your bone does. So, you know, I could tell where you grew up. And so Alexa is using that to her advantage to um, trying to identify a, a, a skeleton. It's just fascinating. So that's more, okay, that is more interesting to me because, so when my son and I were talking, we were talking, I was talking about the x-rays, which is like the base level, you know, right. and right. I was saying that not everybody's had x-rays. I mean, you know, dental care that's doesn't right. have insurance for a lot of people. And so, you know, it gets left by the wayside and that's a whole different conversation. But I hadn't thought about the second part about what you can tell, because that's true. You know, so we, our conversation sort of digressed and I talked about, you know, my knowledge of like, <laughs> well, people who have broken bones, I mean, there's other things that happen to people, which are, I don't want to say fairly unique, but you know, the way your bones knit is right. fairly, you know, right. it's fairly unique and not everybody has like a broken wrist or a broken arm or a broken femur or whatever it is. Um, so I thought right. that was interesting, but you're right about the other tooth part. It's not so much like this pattern of teeth in this mouth belongs to John or whatever, but also the other things you can find because, because the teeth don't, yes. regenerate and we, we do get quite stuck with them. So I, I think it's really important to take care of them. But oh, I do. I'm gosh, they're they're just amazing. They do. <laughs> they last our whole yes, lives. Yes, they do. Don't regenerate. Oh my god. Well, they can last yes. our whole lives. But I think that's and and another really cool thing. She is just uh, so in the book I'm writing now. There's a burn victim, and all that's left is. Um, uh, ashes and uh, a tooth fragment. And in that tooth fragment is uh, some dental work and the uh, fillers in your mouth. Mm-hmm. 
um, are actually um, all unique. So you could analyze that little tiny piece of a filling and narrow it down to what dentists use that type of filling. I have heard. So they, I'm just finding out so much cool stuff about teeth and odontology. No, I've heard that because <laughs> I don't. I, I've never had a cavity, so I've never had a filling. So. Good for but you. But I heard that and I've always thought about that because, okay, so, you know, when I was a kid, like people had the silver. I mean, I know that they don't use any of that stuff anymore. Right. And some people I know That's have right. replaced it, but not everyone. I have no idea the percentages on that. But I do, I do find some of that fascinating because, well, I'm sure you've gone to the dentist your whole life. And like I was at the dentist, I don't know, I go twice a year, so August maybe. And I was really sort of fascinated. I was talking to the, oh my God the, I was talking to the dentist about the change because she was my age. So, you know, when I went to the dentist in the seventies and eighties, it's far different than it is now. And technology has changed. And it's actually the same with the eye doctor because I was just there getting my prescription redone. And it's fascinating to me. Hey, it's so much faster. <laughs> just like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Like they did not have all of these machines and all of this technology when I was a kid and it's fascinating to me what has changed. But do you know, and maybe I'll, I'll ask you, do you know whether or not it has become more homogenized, I guess is what I want to say. Well, these fillers are not homogenized at all. Oh, still you even know, now? Wow. Even, even mm -hmm. now, that's right. Uh, if, if you have a, um, a, a tooth color filling in your mouth, um, it, your dentist might use a different chemical composition than uh, a dentist here in North Carolina. Oh. So it's, it's uh, really, it's just fascinating. Okay, so in my head, when I was thinking about how it's much more similar dentist experiences than mm -hmm. um, even like eye doctor experiences than when I was a kid, I was wondering if that had changed because we were, so on my way driving my son to school, we were driving by a, by a mall and we were talking about the history of malls and how when I grew up, they didn't have malls and then they had malls and now malls are dying, which is a whole like arc. <laughs> <laughs> It is an art. It is an art. It's a character art of malls, <laughs> and it was it was sort of interesting. So I was explaining to him like how big box stores proliferated, but when I was growing up, that that did that was not a thing that existed. So if you had Bloomingdale's, they had something else. You know, it was very it was regional, right? And there were so many differences. But now, like I don't know, you can well, no, Bed Bath went bankrupt, but you can go to I guess Target would be an example everywhere, and it's fairly mm -hmm. similar. Or you can go to I think now even Macy's. And it's fairly similar. And so in my head, when I was like reading, I was thinking to myself, I would assume that now everybody uses like this amalgam because we've all decided this is the best amalgam and there's only one amalgam provider <laughs> in, you know, in the U.S. Right. But I'm, it's right. Yeah. Apparently not so. Apparently amalgams, you know, everybody's trying to sell them and everybody has a different uh, chemical makeup and uh, that can be traced. Okay. Can I ask you this question? So there's an article. Oh my God. Let me think. I want to say it's either New York Times or Washington Post. And if it's some third thing, I who knows? Um, but the, I skim those in the morning. But there was a fascinating article. And it's something I've noticed when in my little reality TV like dip in the last six months that, okay, when I was younger, everybody's teeth looked different. And so I was even... My dentist did a rent, um, my LA dentist did a remodel and in the remodel, he has now like these big screens up and they flash like basically it's LA. So celebrities he's worked on and they have the before and after teeth. Some of the people I'm like, 
I, I see why you fixed it. <laughs> but some of the people I'm like, there was yeah. literally nothing wrong with your teeth. And now they look really um, homogenized. And it's, but there was this article in the Washington Post that talked about how, <laughs> this is so bizarre, how with people getting caps or whatever, um, uh-huh. people's teeth are becoming a much more uniform look. So if you're watching TV, everybody's teeth are fairly similar. Um, wow, that's, that's really fascinating. Of a certain generation. Yeah. But I... Alex is going to have to investigate. Well, no, this. because I do wonder because, so I don't, I, okay. I, my teeth are not problematic. So, I, but I, I remember like maybe like 20 years ago, people were getting them and I was like, but they filed down your teeth. And I was like, so how long do they last? And people are like 15 to 20 years. And I'm thinking, right. So in 15 to 20 years, when you're older and less, you know, right. Right. People of healing as it were, I'm finding out now, then one of the fascinating things I've discovered about teeth is um, uh, we have more crowding and crooked teeth than there were uh, over a hundred years ago and and much further back. And the reason for that is our jaws are getting smaller because we don't have to chew food that's as mm. hard. And, and you know the evolution, our teeth have adapted, our jaws have become smaller, and that's why we have you know more people going to the uh, orthodontist than mm-hmm. in, in the past. And I thought that was fascinating. That is so I, Oh my God. But I did. But then I wonder what the future is. So then right. I spend right. a lot of time thinking about that because dental, because of the, we're not sharks. <laughs> and so anything you right. do is, I don't, I don't want to say it's permanent or not impermanent and creates like an ongoing care need when you may not be able to care for that later. So, I mean, like, let's say I meet people, people in their twenties and they're like, I'm going to get caps. And you're like, okay, but let's say at 40 and you're on strike as an actor and the money's not coming in, but you have to redo them. Then what happens? I really like, this is like, literally this has plagued me over the last couple of weeks. I'm like, but then what happens? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hope a dentist is, uh, you know, given the long view as well as the short view. But you know, people lots of times don't even want to consider the long, the long view. I don't live in a long view town right now, so I, um, I have a lot of thoughts about that. So what? So let me say this: I don't like to do research um, when writing. I'll research anything else, but not the thing I'm doing. What level of research do you have to do when writing these books? Oh, my gosh. Yesterday I had to pay for an article, Amy, <laughs> and it was either it, it was, um, OK, glacial effects on a body. So, uh, uh, you know, we're having more uh, gl- as the glaciers recede, people that have lost their lives mountain climbing maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago are being spit out. Oh, my God. I read about this now. yesterday in South America. I know that's so fascinating. Okay, where, where was I going with this? Oh, okay. And so I wanted to know, okay, so Alexa uh, finds a skeleton. Well, what condition is the skeleton going to be mm-hmm. in? So that rabbit hole was a $50. I had to pay $50 for this article, but I wasn't about to pay $50 for this article. I could rent it for 24 <laughs> hours. Who ever heard of that? So yesterday, I think, you know, after the podcast is over, I might still have an hour or two left and I'm, I'm 
go back and check all my right. notes, but um, it's fascinating what a, a glacier does to the body. It can actually um, preserve uh, soft tissue and or it can cleave a body apart, you know, you name it. But now I've got the research to oh back God. what electrical. So yesterday, <laughs> what I should have been perhaps editing, I may have dived into so there was apparently there's some glacier receding in oh my god I want to say it was Chile but I'm, I may not get that right because I was, I was reading this National Geographic article from 97 and then one from 2007 where they were comparing wow. bodies that they had found with glacier receding so not only were there like I don't know how am I going to say this nicely new bodies like something from the last like 20 to 50 years where people just had an unfortunate yes. accident but there were also people from like for let's see, it was fourteen hundred, so six hundred years ago. Exactly. Who, who it's a, and it is it is hard to tell the difference. Yes, they're talking about the level of preservation. <laughs> oh my god, this is yesterday. The level of preservation, and I was literally so. I mean, I grew up in an era like you know where people talked about cryogenics, and we can discuss whether or not it works. Yeah. And you now, yeah. I think they can unfreeze you, but you can't be dead. So when I was a kid, people were frozen after death. And I don't know if they're going to be able to be revived. Yeah. You know, who knows? Um, yeah. yeah. But I was I was reading the article because I was fascinated by the preservation aspect of things like hair and nails, like the things that, well, no, hair lasts a long time. I know. I know. Alexa can't believe there's yeah. hair on this skull and that, now that she's come across. Yeah. And I am fascinated by, A, because I just found a body in a book I wrote, but the hair, she was wearing a wig. And so that was the thing that people threw people off initially. <laughs> Oh, but, wow. Great idea, by the way. I might have to steal it. <laughs> well, no, it was because I was like, and anyway, because people were like, why is her hair? And it was like, oh, it's a wig. Um, she was she was found in Cleveland. So, you know, freeze thaw, freeze thaw, freeze thaw. But she was in a, yeah, exactly. oh, she was in a oh. bag. So it became like this tension between oh the gosh. normal decomposition um, because of bugs. But when you introduce a plastic bag, you eliminate some of those aspects. And so it was a tension oh, between gosh. different kinds of oh, decomposition. Like you're in a bag, so that's its own problem with heating and thawing. Oh, that is great. You are right up my alley. Here's something that I just found out yesterday, too, that an unfrozen body decomposes from the inside out, but a frozen body decomposes from oh, the outside yeah. in. I'm like, is that not the most fascinating thing you have ever heard? Oh my God. See, now this is, I'm not going to get anything done the rest of the day because now I'll be back to do body uh, decomposition. That's pretty cool I stuff. I just find it interesting. Well, I think, well, I'll ask you this because the reason I've sort of gone down the forensics road, and it's not my first thing. Mostly, I've written a lot of books without anybody dying. And then lately I've introduced death. I read yeah. that. Yes. It's not my... I read that. Because books. I think the criminal justice system is fascinating enough without needing to have produce a body, but yes. um, I've sort of changed the way I'm writing, but that's, you know, here, neither here nor there, but I'm sort of fascinated by the idea of forensics because I, up until I read the thing on your website, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated with the idea of having better answers. And actually one of the things I deal with in this book is um, bullets and that, that unique fingerprint with the gun and the bullet itself. But I like the idea of more absolute answers rather than the wishy-washy, you know, when I went to court. So look, I'm going to say 90% of the time, it was fairly straightforward. You knew who had maybe been accused of doing the thing and you knew the circumstances around it. It was a little more nuanced. Like, 
were they too drunk or, you know, it was not so, you know, it wasn't like a mystery. But I think with forensics, there's so much appeal in the absolute and eliminating uncertainty. That's right. That's right. I, I agree. It's, um, you know, it's, it's often what jurors want mm-hmm. to hear. Where's the forensic? Bring me the forensics. Right. Especially now. I mean, it, it, I, I remember like one of my first trials, the, no, this is not great. So the prosecutor came, I can't remember his name. I can see his face though. He, he would stack up all these paper bags, um, labeled evidence on his, um, on his table, on a prosecution table. And it gave the illusion that a lot had happened and what I learned about the money back then in the cross-examination. So my client was um, found not guilty. What I learned was that they didn't test the evidence. So it was just like the illusion of forensics. And then when they would put the person on the stand, it doesn't matter what kind of person it was to testify. It'd be like, well, did you test the DNA? Did you test this? Did you test the saliva? Whatever, you know, all the stuff. And they're like, no. So it just became, I think my closing argument was about the illusion of evidence. He has bags, but nothing inside or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, good. Good writing. But it was just, um, it's, it's, the certainty feels good, but I think that maybe, and what I'm getting from talking to you is that maybe we shouldn't put all our eggs in this, the certainty forensic basket. That's right. That's right. That's right. Or at least, you know, ask for, you know, how has this been verified? What are your qualifications? Mm -hmm. You know, what, what do the line studies say? You know, ask questions like that. Okay. Of an expert witness. Okay. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about writing. Um, I, okay. I can't, Okay, you're the. How did you just sit down and write a book? You're not the only person that's done that, but there's like two sort of different sort of stories. There's people who had a lot of uncertainty, and I mean, I know a lot of people who who started and didn't finish like five to seven books before they got to the one they finished. You know what I mean? But what gave you the certainty, confidence? I'm not saying you shouldn't have had it to sit down and like, I'm going to write a book and then do it. Yeah. I don't, I don't know where that came from, Amy. I can't answer that. I just, I just knew I could do it. I'm like, okay, all my favorite Nevada bar did it. And Donna Leone did it. And Elizabeth George did it. And why can't I do it? So I just did it. I didn't, I didn't with my first book, I didn't know who the killer was till like two thirds through Mm -hmm. Um, I had to write my way to uh, who did it. And that made, I felt like, oh, I must be doing it wrong. Nah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no, no. Um, and, uh, you know, every time I sit down and write a book, I'm like, oh, I'm an imposter. I don't, I don't know if I can do that. And I have to work through that each time. Oh. Um, I just felt like it was kind of also because I was, uh, let's say I was writing that book. I was, you know, 57, 58 years old. I'm like, you know, if you're ever going to do it, it's time to do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, not not that I couldn't have done it 10 years later. I think uh, Where the Crawl Dads Woman was 70 when her first mm-hmm. book was published. You can still do it at any age, but I'm like, okay, let's get serious about it. Let's do it. Are you, oh, I have so many questions. So after the, okay, after I wrote my first book, I had some thoughts about the process and it, it took me three books to figure out what my particular process was and I haven't changed it since because it's working. What? Did your process change between book one and subsequent? 
oh, you know, I because I wasn't much of a plotter, I felt like I had to be a plotter. And so I think with book three, I must have spent uh, three or four, and then I got a contract. So I'm under a contract uh, for six books, and I have a year to write these books. And that's a lot of that's a lot of pressure. Um, it's a wonderful mm. pressure. I'm not complaining, but it's a lot of pressure. And I spent of that year, I spent maybe three or four to- uh, months uh, elaborately plotting so that when I got around to writing the book, it would be so much easier. Well, hello. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I'm not a plotter, so I get it. I know. I, I was like, okay, I used the first 60 pages of that well-outlined uh, book, but then I veered off course. So now I just sort of generally outline, and I do know who did it, and I work harder on um, motive, oh. um, but uh, my process continues to evolve. Let's put it that, that is way. So interesting. I haven't found exactly. Uh, it sounds like maybe you have. I haven't found exactly what works. What I have done recently that's really helping is I'm being more deliberate about my word count. Used to be I'd say I'll write two pages a day. Well, you know, two pages. You know, <laughs> if you start a new chapter and there's a lot of dialogue, you aren't writing a no. lot of words. So now I'm shooting for my thousand words a day. And most days I get 800. And when I do that, I'm like, good, you know, and that's, that's been, I feel more in control now that I'm uh, keeping better account of my word count. Yeah. So I do, I do have a specific word count and I do do that. And, uh, Yours is higher than it's mine. It's sixteen hundred, but it's I'm not. Impressed. You, but you, That's you say lot. that, but I know people who can write like two, three, four thousand. And I thought, I don't even know if I could sit still that long. Like I just, like I don't have. No. I would need to. So I, I used to like walk the dog to do this, but I need to walk away, and I need to take a walk, and I need to like fiddle around, and I need to like I need to move. So I bike and I exercise. I do. That's I need right. to move. So for me, the moving. Can I just tell you, biking like. When I'm biking, all the ideas come to me and also in the shower, places where you cannot write them down and or also or driving on a six lane freeway. And I'm like, I have the best ideas right now, but I also need to be able to cross six lanes and get off the freeway. But you generally remember them, right? When it's time? Uh, 50%. It's, it's okay. not great. Okay. It's not yeah. great, but I will say this. What I have found is that this is actually fascinating. I think it's something about the human brain. I found that when I'm editing sometimes that the same idea comes to me. So I edit, I write in a linear fashion and I also edit in a linear fashion. And sometimes I will add something while I'm editing and two paragraphs later, I will have already written that a similar thought. And so I, I don't worry about it anymore because I think that my brain has a certain route that it travels down and eventually all of the information, it may may not be in the same order. It's, you know, but it's never like more than a few paragraphs apart. All the information is there. And I just trust that. Like I've let go of, oh, I've got to let go of all the things like people sent me plotting. So I have these friends that plot and are very, very successful. And so I'm like, I have an entire like computer folder full of plotting materials that I will never use. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm right with you. But I'm I right like the, you. okay. I'm an orderly person in my life. Like everything's neat and you pay my mm-hmm. bills on time. And like my closet's completely organized and everything's folded like Marie Kondo style. So I love the idea of <laughs> order, but when it uh-huh. comes to writing, I think my brain is chaos. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
I think that's why I'm doing my little spreadsheet now with my word count. That's my order. And uh, and it's really uh, psychologically um, been positive for me. Yeah, I have an app called, it's called Word Count Dashboard. It's like, a, it's on a Mac. It's like, it cost me probably like $5. It's really rudimentary. Just as a picture of your word count, a picture of like, you get a gold star if you make your word count. I'm going to look at that as soon as we hang up. I'm so you get a gold, that. it's like gold, silver, bronze star. And then, you know, your word count, the date it's due and where you, your, your progress. And it gives you a percentage. Like that's literally all that's involved. And it's always open because I like, but I'm a kid, you know, I grew up in the era of getting a gold star on your test. And I really, I find. Exactly. I love that. I'm like, gold where's star. my gold star? I don't get a gold star on my spreadsheet. No, so I have to. It's so much easier for me to edit than to write forward. And that's my happy spot. I love to start by going back what I wrote, going over what I wrote the day before. And I could, I could just stay there forever. And I'm like, nope, you got to push forward. Yeah. So that's actually my method. So I write, I only write dialogue. I'm not going to get into that, but because I, I can't do the other part. I find it that other parts of job, the dialogue is fun. So I write the dialogue and then the next, like I write the 1600 words. And then the next day I go back and I edit that. And then I write the new words. Um, and, and it's not yeah, as fully, yeah. like, it's not as fully, it's not like 3,200 words of thinking a day. It's not quite that because I don't quite go back that far, but I do right. find it. Well, also I, I can't believe I say this because one day to the next, I don't know why I can't remember where I left off, but I do find it <laughs> helpful in, oh, okay, this is where I left off. Let me just keep going. Um, that's right. That's right. But it's not perfect. And I don't like, I'll ask you this because the first 20,000 words, love it. I could, if I could, if every book was 20,000 words, I'd be just, my life would be a delight. It's like, oh, look at the joy. There's a new story. But after the first 20,000 words, I'm like shooting daggers and like everything. I'm like, this is a job. This is a slog. I can't believe I took on this thing again. I'm never going to finish. I don't know if I can write and you know, whatever I can, it's like a, and then the end is like a, it feels like a race downhill because then I like, not only do I know what's going to happen, it, I need to get it out of my head rapidly because I'm carrying so much information in my head. Yes. And you gotta, you gotta ramp, ramp up. The yes. and, uh, but no, that, that halfway mark to the two thirds mark. Oh, it's horrible. <laughs> it's really, it's really hard. <laughs> and I don't, I haven't found it. So I'm saying I'm going to be up. Got no remedy for that. Um, if no, same here, same except to keep at it, yeah. I just, you know, like you say on your website, but in the seat, you know, you got to keep pushing forward, yes. And so, I'm not a write when inspired person, I write more when inspired, but I, but That's I did right. find this is so sad. I did find that when I reread the books, and I know which part was harder to write versus which part was easier to write, they read no differently. So, it's clearly some mental thing, as far as psychological, that I, I'm not unweaving it. This is not my like, great life's work. But I do know that there's no appreciable difference between the hard words and the easy words, which is. That's right. That's right. And that, that's a sign of a good writer when you look back and can't see. Yeah, but it makes place. me sad because I want the easy words to be. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know why it makes me sad. It's, it makes no sense. So let me. But it is pretty cool when you get into the mm -hmm. zone, you know, and you've written three pages and, and time is past and you're so focused and uh, that's really sweet when that yeah, happens. I've burned a lot of food that way. Um, <laughs> I, did, I did it the other day. I'm like, I'm just going to sit down and just look at this. And, I, and I'm like, why is there smoke in the house? 
And and the thing is, I like I used to sit in the kitchen at the breakfast bar. I'm looking at it now, and and uh-huh. write, and I still would burn food. And I'm literally like <laughs> two feet from the stove. So That's you know, I don't feel like I'm in the zone, but I know it because I burn the food. Um, That's right. Okay. So what? Okay. Can I? Well, I'll ask you this. Do you think that? Let me know. How can I say this? Is there any other kind of story that you think you want to tell? Since you haven't switched genres and hopped around and done a lot of things we yeah. all, a lot of us have done. Yes, yes. You know, I have a middle grades uh, mystery that I wrote and I loved and my agent wasn't able to sell it. And I'd like to get back and write that again. And then I have a wonderful women's fiction story that is just bursting through me and wants to be written. It's a, it's, it's basically a, um, maybe a 80 year old woman and her 53 uh, year old daughter and the tension between them as the 80 year old who lives in a, a retirement community is um, starting to date while the 52 year old is going through a divorce and dogs are involved. Oh my God, you've hit my sweet spot. I love dogs and it's fiction. I- Oh, I know. No other daughter, daughter yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, and I, you know, so what I'm going to do is if I get a, um, so my contract runs out after the book that I wrote now. And um, so first of all, will they renew my contract or not? That's yeah. yet to be determined. And if they do, fine, but I'm going to ask for more time in between book six and book seven uh, and write this book. Uh, I think I had a name for it, but I, I can't remember what because I have mm-hmm. started it. Um, and then, but if the contract isn't renewed, I'm just going to throw my whole self into this book. Please so do. Way, uh, I'll come out. Thank you. I think it's, it's a great just, plot, and I, I can't wait to you write it. You just touch my so that women's fiction is the genre I love the most. I can't read the same thing. I can't read the same genre over and over again. I do really switch back and forth because right. I need my brain can't tolerate right. it, but. It's my favorite, like it's, it has everything. It has like a little bit of romance and like family tension and other things. And something about it seems to be like the whole experience, like that I want in a book. Well, I'm, I, I agree. It's, and uh, so anyway, that's, that's what I will I write when I'm not writing my Alexa Glock books. And then the thought. But she's a lot of fun. I do no, love she, her. <laughs> for me, she's a lot of fun because she's got she's got she's got a lot going on. Um, okay, my last question for you is: What are you reading right now? Oh, right now! Oh my gosh, it's so so good, Amy. I don't want it to end, and it's just a tiny little gem of a book. It's called "Small Things Like These" by Claire Keegan, an, an Irish writer, and I I can't recommend it enough. Enough. She does not waste a single word. She explores the mother child, uh, the mother baby um, Ireland, uh, you know, when the girls got Mm -hmm, sent mm -hmm. off uh, to have their babies and the babies were taken from them. Uh, But it's through a 40 year old man's point of view. And it's, it is, um, I mean, won all kinds of awards, but it is just a little gem. I have not heard this, and now I've added it to my list because I love Irish writers. Good. I really do. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, I'm not going to ask you. Yeah. I assume you've read a ton of French. <laughs> I love mm-hmm. her. Oh, The Searcher. What a good it's my book. Favorite. It's my favorite book from, like, yeah. two years ago. I still, yeah. it's still, I don't dislike the Dublin oh, Murders yeah. mystery series, but that one. Yeah, yeah. The, 
well, the relationship was the thing for me, not so much the fear searching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was a good, that was a really I, good I, book. And uh, boy, can she do uh, atmosphere and setting, you know, and, and dialogue and everything. She's, she's really Yeah, good. I really like that. But did you read like Maeve Finchie back in the day? Uh, I think it was just a little too romance oriented mm -hmm. for yeah. me. Um, she had, well, she wrote different unfortunately and yeah, they, they were not okay let me say this they were marketed more similar than they are i think that's but uh -huh. it's the same with like that elizabeth george with like the one the one book that i think is the, her best book it it's different than the rest but they sort of try to package them because that's you know i understand what it takes to sell a book that's right. that's so right. i get it um no that was yeah. what are you reading right now <laughs> other than the sociopath <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's, uh, I need to let that go. Um, I did. Okay. So I'm going to have to write this no, down. No, I actually <laughs> did start a book. Um, no, I want to say it's called a million small things, but I'm not going to get it right. Which is ironically Irish. Um, no, it's one, the 100 years of Lenny and Margot. Um, oh, wow. That's an interesting title. Well, I don't know. I hate spoilers, but it's about the main characters dying. Mm -hmm. um, so, but it's really, mm -hmm. I don't know how to, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's just different. It's not, it's not romance. It's not sci-fi. It's not fantasy. You know what I mean? So it's just um, yeah. straight yeah. fiction and I'm really enjoying it because the, like she starts off talking about how they no longer talk about death and she's in the, like, the, her disease, they call it life-limiting as opposed to terminal. And I thought that was fascinating. Uh -huh. And I was like, that is an interesting twist of terminology. And I'm going to have to look that up later. But um, that's the one I'm reading now, that and the sociopathics. <laughs> so, you know, it, the sociopathics are I'm trying to read for writing. Like, I really want to explore the psychology of immoral or lack of morality, I guess, more. Yes. Um, and then the other one is just pleasure because I got to read something at night. Um, so I want to thank you so much for taking the time uh, to speak with you today. You know, I'm going to go look up this book because I'm like, now this is how I'm going to spend my afternoon. Like, I could edit or. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Her short stories are just a, a force of nature. But thank you, Amy, for having me. This has been so much fun. I'm so glad we're friends Yes, I now. really appreciate it. Now I have to go, okay, keep writing. That's actually what all I want to say. <laughs> keep keep, keep okay. doing the thing because um, it, it's a joy. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been a time to thrill with me, your host, Amy Austin. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll share, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It will help others to find and enjoy my conversations with brilliant women creators. Also, please hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. In addition to hosting this podcast, I am also the author of the Nicole Long series of legal thrillers. The first three books in the Nicole Long series are now live. You can download Outcry Witness, Major Crimes, and without consent to your e-reader right now. The fourth book in the new series, The Murders Began, is available for pre-order wherever you get your books. I'm also the author of the Casey Quitt series of legal thrillers. These titles are available wherever books are sold, your local library, and also an audiobook. 
You can also find this podcast on Facebook at A Time to Thrill. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back with you soon with more great conversations.